Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name's Callum Watts. I am not here with Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. And Bradley Alsop. Hello there. And this week, I hope you are all still staying in your homes. We did say we might have Karen Lee, but obviously being uh, a nurse, one of our valiant healthcare workers, uh, she is extremely busy at the moment. So we're just going to stick with us for the time being. Um, I hope you're all staying in your homes and behaving yourselves. Um, We have a number of stories to talk about this weekend, including uh, the government's uh, slow response and preparations to the COVID outbreak uh, in the first place. We're also going to talk about the response of the new leader of the opposition and the Labour Party. We'll follow up as well on our uh, discussion from last week. Uh, the crisis about PPE uh, in the health service and also critically in care homes uh, in Lincolnshire and across country. But first, um, we want to talk about a very disturbing case uh, which has happened uh, in Lancaster. Um, the uh, there's a video going around uh, online of a young man who we don't know the context. We don't know what he was doing beforehand, um, presumably not very much, um, because the police officer who is confronting him says that he will, quote, make something up in order to lock him up just for squaring up to him in, in his own words. Um, this comes off the back of uh, a number of incidents uh, over the last few weeks since the start of the lockdown, uh, where police have been seen patrolling the aisles of supermarkets, uh, telling people what they can and can't, cannot buy, threatening to set up roadblocks to check people's cars to see what they whether they've been buying uh, what they deem to be essential items. Um, and even in one case, telling a family that they couldn't or their children couldn't hang out in their own front garden. Um, to be fair, um, these are presumably isolated cases. Um, but it is somewhat worrying, isn't it, that um, some, especially when police forces, I thought the, the most worrying one was the the um, police force, I think it was Durham, um, that was... Uh, tweeting about setting up roadblocks. Um, obviously, at the beginning, we saw uh, them sending up uh, drones to spy on people as well. Um, and it's been interesting to see how, quite ironically, the government, which is quite right-wing and authoritarian, let's remember that Boris Johnson, uh, when he was mayor of London, uh, wanted to buy water cannons and presumably he did use buy them. Water but he did buy water cannons. He just wasn't allowed to use them uh, <laughs> in the end. Um, by Theresa May, of all people, when she was Home Secretary, she stopped him from uh, from from deploying them. Um, he so he clearly is an authoritarian or has authoritarian tendencies, but it's actually been the government repeatedly uh, telling the police and telling the public, no, no. You can do what you like in your own homes, on your own property, so long as you are staying on your own property. You're not going to see other people. Um, and you can buy what you like in supermarkets. It's for the su- supermarkets to decide how much of which items um, you buy and so on. There is no rationing. Um, does it, Bradley, does it worry you um, that, uh, that these sorts of things are happening? What does it say about... Um, the potential for a more authoritarian outcome from this crisis? I I, th- I think I'm in two minds about it, really, because I think there, there was the initial reaction from, a, I suppose, a, a clique of anarchists and, and on the other side of it, libertarians, that were sort of very much against any sort of lockdown and, and were, were very worried about any suggestion of increased police powers and all the rest of it. Um, and I, and I didn't really have any time for that because, you know, we are we are in an unprecedented situation um, and actually pe- people are breaking the rules. You know, you see you, you must have seen it yourself as anyone that's listening. You know, on a daily basis, we do see people taking the mick and, and breaking the rules. So and it is serious, it, although it may not feel like it and it's not immediately obvious. If we if we don't obey the rules at the moment, people could die because of it. So on the one hand, I, I do sort of understand uh, uh, and do want actually a, a slightly more emboldened police force to be able to tackle that. 
I, I think the question becomes what happens in the long term? How do we begin to reduce these powers in a, in a democratic and, and safe way? And, I, and that's where I don't trust the government. I, I, I don't trust, I, do, I don't think Boris is deliberately setting out to set up some sort of precursor to an authoritarian regime or anything like that. Um, but I do think in the months and years ahead, if he can gain small advantages to his own um, standing by misusing the police in one way or another or keeping their powers intact for a little bit longer, if it means suppressing dissent over something popular that happens in Parliament or, or whatever, I, I think he would use those things opportunistically if he could and he, if he thought he could get away with it. So I think, I suppose ultimately that's that's the job of the opposition, isn't it really, to be holding into account over that and making sure that uh, these new powers are reduced at the appropriate time and, and that they don't hang on longer than they need to be. Um, so, yeah. We did... Um, the, the, the opposition hasn't really said anything uh, on it so far. Um, we had the uh, Home Secretary, I think, or the Shadow Home Secretary, rather, uh, make a statement last week that was... Um, uncritically praising the police and and look to be fair we accept that it's a difficult job obviously 95 percent of the time probably (laughs) there you know it's fine it's just exercising common sense and things like that so um but we also know that this instance has been caught on camera and there will be others that aren't um and we know from academic studies that there is that sort of discrimination against especially against um you know pe- working class people in particular especially against BAME people um you know something i've noticed myself you know i've got a southern accent and it's it i know i've got a bit of a posh voice whenever um and i i haven't been stopped by police very much in my life but when i have been stopped by police on what at least one of those occasions i what did happen to be with a black friend of mine um the moments that i open my mouth they go from being quite aggressive to being very polite all of a sudden so that my my lived experience is kind of the op, um, the opposite of the worst, if you see what I mean. I've seen classism, but from the other side. Um, um, so it does worry me that that attitude is there. And it's not just that rank and file officers are caught doing it. It's that it's there in the highest echelons. Those tweets came out from chief constables. Um, and I think that the Labour Party in particular needs to be quite strong. It's got to tread a line, obviously, because people don't like seeing the police attacked because a lot of the end of the day, it's just people doing their jobs. But we still need to hold them to account as we would uh, anyone else doing a very uh, serious role. Um, what do you think about these uh, instances, Callum? Do you think it's... Yeah, I, it's sort of a similar similar approach to to Bradley, really. It's a case of it's necessary that we have these lockdown powers given to the police because there are people taking the mickey. But at the same time, we can't have the police taking the mickey. And there is a number of instances now, as, as, you've, as you've listed. But this one is particularly bad, in my opinion, because it's, they've actually gone out of their way to pull someone over. I was reading an article about this instance, and um, apparently they're on their way to a completely different thing. They weren't just prowling. They've actually gone away from what they were told to do to pull this person over um, and and accuse them of things they haven't done. And so I, I think it's right that we do have this transition afterwards, that we the, the powers are effectively returned, because we've seen it with stop and search. If you give police stop and search, we know how that's been abused, certainly in London with uh, ethnic minorities. And as a, as a Londoner, that's, I, I haven't ex- experienced it myself, but that's because I'm white. But I know people that have been stopped and searched on regular occasions and they, you know, they've had enough of it. And and this is just another extension of those powers. And I would be very scared if it was continued and we should be demanding after the crisis has subsided. This isn't a, a precedent to be set and we don't keep those powers with them, but they only come in when we really do need them. And, and this is a what we're being called a, a once in a lifetime situation. So those powers should only be used where necessary, because otherwise we do start slipping into that territory of, of an authoritarian state. And I'm going to be paranoid about it because I'm not sure if you're aware of 
in America, these people opposing the lockdown completely and protesting in large crowds. Oh, it's madness. Isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, it's crazy. There's a number of right wing groups saying that with like banners, I, I that did make me laugh, calling it like socialism distancing and sort of blaming this as being some sort of communist principle that they're implementing. And it, it doesn't belong in America, apparently. It's ridiculous. So we don't want to be seen as some sort of nutters opposing the state trying to do good, but at the same time, it has a time and a place. And if it is being abused, it, it should be, you know, it should be suspended and it's an abuse of power. It's a, it will be um it's a relief that we haven't seen those sorts of acts of stupidity uh happen in this country at least since the lockdown was actually declared you know as we noted in a previous podcast we had a lot of people flying off to Skegness um well not flying but driving off to Skegness just before <laughs> the lockdown and um you know people going to to Wales and and that sort of thing because in part, the government wasn't taking it seriously at the time, which we'll talk about at the moment. But just to finish that, uh, just to finish that thought, I think it would be reassuring because um, Lancaster police have apologised for that incident, just like they've apologised. A lot of police forces have apologised for some of their other statements where they've overreached somewhat. Um, it would be reassuring it to know that that police officer wasn't on active duty and that they were suspended under investigation obviously i'm not advocating any particular disciplinary action for a a, a working person but it needs to be investigated um uh, and dealt with uh, appropriately um so we'll see what happens with that but as i said before yeah, go on, sorry. Go on, Bradley, you have thoughts. So obviously, the left have a slightly fraught relationship with, with the police. Mm. Um, for obvious reasons, I think, it probably stems from the fact that quite often the, the, the left is not in power um, and, and the right is. And so police forces are used as a tool by the right to, to limit and oppress left-wing movements. So, you know, historically, you know, it's about 200, 300 years um, up until the present day. So I think that's probably part of the reason I think also, obviously, a lot of left movements have an inherent distrust of sort of authority and 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 the some of the tactics that, that police forces use sometimes. Um, but I think for me as a socialist, we always need to think of the structural issues, don't we? We need to think of the system and the reason the police. Well, sometimes it's individuals within the police force that that do dodgy things, um, but there's also systemic reasons. You know, the people in power ultimately control the police and. If the police, if the police force as a whole is doing dodgy things, it's because of the people in power are telling them to. And I think part part of the problem we have at the moment is the is the focus on the individual rather than the, the collective. Um, so obviously, like we've already said, there are people taking the mickey, there are people breaking the rules, and we do need an efficient response to that. But I think that the bigger problem and the thing that's really pushing the death toll up in these weeks now is the poor response from the government. Uh, at the start of the crisis and i think there there is a risk sometimes that that the focus is on individuals breaking rules you know so and so at a beach somewhere having a barbecue with 20 people and um, i'm sure that stuff happens and i'm sure some of that stuff will lead to deaths and those people are idiots but the the bigger problem that perhaps isn't being talked about enough um is the failures of of the government and i think that's a far more important factor to be focusing on um that then you know, individuals break it, breaking the rules, um, and we, we've seen some of this, haven't we? We've seen stuff that's come out. I've just done your segue, sorry, Callum. Yeah, I was just about to say you, you you've <laughs> done my segue for me. Um, that's okay. That's okay. Um, um, you just highlighted, of course, uh, the government's response. I think we all remember um, at the very beginning. Um, Boris Johnson bouncing into uh, conference court, um, uh, into uh, um, press halls, saying, um, "Oh yes, you'll be, you'll be pleased to know that I'm still going around shaking hands uh, with COVID nineteen patients." Mm-hmm. Um, we know that before that started happening, there were five. During that period, there were five um, Cobra meetings. Cobra being. Uh, the UK's Emergency Response Committee, um, that he just missed entirely. Um, On one occasion, I believe it was to uh, go to uh, a Lunar New Year celebration, 
um, and he also went on holiday as well. I think you've done more research on this than I have, Callum. You've been keeping up with this story, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so a rather damning article published in Times today. Um, the Times, we don't normally quote them on here or we don't normally look at the news um, that they're putting up. But actually, that they've been quite critical of the government, which is which is welcome to see because we, we've very much, you know, they've historically been singing from Johnson's hymn sheet. But um, there's a number of um, revelations that have come out of this that I think I think there'll be more, but some of these are just, I'm just going to go through them. But um, so January 24th, Matt Hancock said the risk to the public was low. This at the time, we've got to remember that I think in Wuhan, it was it was starting to really spike um, and, and, and there was an evident danger. But, you know, at the, at, on the exact same day, January 24th, a, a report came out in The Lancet, which compared the severity of coronavirus, COVID-19, to the 1918 Spanish flu. And they just they, they said the risk was low, which is ridiculous. Then, as you said before, Callum, Boris Johnson's missed five COBRA meetings specifically on COVID-19 for a number of reasons, which I think, you know, it, it, it feeds into complacency. And a number of um, experts that have been quoted in this article have said that they've been complacent in the run up to um, the cases of, of COVID-19 spreading in the United Kingdom. And I would argue they still are being complacent in a number of cases. Um, so he's still saying that there's low risk. Uh, apparently, Boris only uh, only works during weekdays. He doesn't like to do much work on weekends. He likes the briefings that he's been given in his red box to be short and sweet. He doesn't like too many, or he claims that he doesn't read them, apparently. This is according to this. And some more statistics for you. Apparently, between January and March, 190,000 people flew from the Wuhan area of China to the UK. And they reckon about 1,900 of those people probably were carrying COVID-19. And finally, another quote, and this is in the Times, I'll, I'll reiterate. Pandemic planning has become a casualty of austerity. I think that's the, that's the most damning thing. It's the last 10 years of systematically stripping our system bare has shown exactly the damage that it's done not to just the members of staff, but to the system as a whole, to the patients, to everybody in this country. And we're now feeling the impact of that. So I think this this report, there's more to probably come out, but it, it's it's astonishing. We knew it was bad, but I didn't realise it was this much complacency on, on the part of the government. And there's really questions about about PPE and, and ventilators as well. You know, if you, I'm sure you've both seen some of the stuff that's come out. Um, about companies, you know, practically bending over backwards to produce this stuff for them, um, and and they're simply not even able to get a response from ministers or their departments. Um, but at the same time, we're getting daily press briefings where we're being told the government's uh, what's the phrase they've been using Herculean effort. Um, whereas you know you've got companies practically knocking on the door saying we can do this, we've got these ready to go, and and they're not even getting contacted. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 just completely a lack of complacency. Uh, uh, sorry, there's complete complacency on their part. They just don't know what they're doing. I mean, we could do with a lack of complacency. Yeah, we that's could. Something we could do with. That's that's the problem. Is that they just? I think by calling it a low risk from the start is that they've just ignored it, and then suddenly we're getting a number of cases and a number of deaths that quickly spike in this country, and 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 now we're playing catch up. And the fact that they, I'm, I'm sure you're both aware of it, that they've been repackaging PPE, changing the uh, the date on them in which they expire just so they can use them, is again putting staff in the NHS in danger. Well, I can tell you, to be fair, that particular element it has been going on since the beginning. That's nothing, that's not something that's been, that's, that's new. Um, healthcare staff, um, I, I've been told, um, about three or four weeks ago, um, were opening up uh, packs of PPE, which our hospitals already had in stock, um, which were out of date at that point. Um, so this has been going on for, and and but they were just told you just got to use it anyway because it's better than nothing. Um, and also they have to, uh, so long as it, so long as they pass a fit test, um, and just to describe what that is. 
um, basically you put the mask on and then you make sure it's sealed as best you can. And then they spray um, a sort of, they, they spray a spray that you can taste basically uh, directly in your face. And if you can taste it, then you failed the, the fit test. Basically, that's how it works. Um, so, so long as you pass the fit test, then that means it makes a ni- nice seal around your face and then you can go into work. Um, some people are, or some healthcare workers are failing that because their face is the wrong shape, for example, and they have to be redeployed. Um, so there isn't, yeah, th- this is, this is, this is the problem. So it's not just that we don't have enough PPE. It's just that we also don't have enough to account for variety, you know, in face shapes and things like that. It's so pathetic in a first world country that this is a, that this is a problem for us. Um, and, you know, just on Boris Johnson, I mean, I'm a, I, I would never advocate that a worker should work over the weekend if they're not supposed to. But this is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom responsible for all of our safety. Um, he will, when he goes on, you know, get all sorts of accolades, be invited to dinners and things like that. You know, he has his place in history. That's the price you pay for sacrificing your weekend, if you like. Um, and uh, he's not willing to do that. You know, he's uh, and he's still sticking with his holidays, which is to say, if he were working... Uh, if you were doing, uh, you know, any sort of low-paid work, if you're working in Weatherspoons, for example, um, yeah, absolutely, take your weekends, go on holiday, you deserve it. But he's going to get be highly rewarded for uh, just be, having been prime minister, no matter how bad he is at it, he will be highly rewarded for it, um, and so he should be uh, committing one hundred percent of his effort, twenty-four hours a day to to keeping us safe this there are two aspects to the government's failures on covid-19 there's the short term and then there's the long term there's the short term which is obviously boris johnson's bumbling buffoonery uh when it comes to the short term preparations but there's also the long term thing about repeated reports over the last 10 years saying the nhs is unprepared for a pandemic and then the government doing nothing about it um and it's just inconceivable, really, that they've uh, allowed this situation to develop. But then maybe if you look at their initial response where they were saying, oh, well, you're just going to have to accept that some of your relatives have died. Maybe in that context, it's not so surprising. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I think. Well, they've had four years to prepare for it because they they ran a simulation in in 2016 about our preparedness for a pandemic. And if the government's going to take an exercise specifically to test our response to a pandemic, you would expect them to act upon the shortcomings that they find. But instead, the report effectively has been shelved, swept under the carpet, and now we're left with the consequences of that. It's it's the fundamental responsibility of a government to protect the people in this country, no matter who they work for, no matter how much money they make. It's their responsibility, and they failed. They failed wholeheartedly. And now all we can do, really, in the midst of this, is is try and pick up the pieces afterwards, understand what what's gone yeah. wrong. Yeah, uh, and and as I say, it's already having effects close to home as well. Um, I already know of at least a couple of deaths from staff working in care homes in Lincolnshire. Um, I doubt they will be the last ones. Um, Something to bear in mind is that while hospitals are struggling for PPE, and there's been a very worrying thing come out in the last couple of days, guidance from public health income is um, public health, uh, England rather, uh, is supposed to be switching to basically you're not you shouldn't use full length gowns anymore just use the flimsy sort of plastic bibs basically um so the the amount of ppe in hospitals is in decline uh in if that's the case in hospitals in care homes where the most vulnerable people live uh it's non-existent it just doesn't exist 
um, or, or or they've got or they've got the most basic sort of surgical masks, things like that. Um, and that is where probably a lot of the the healthcare staff deaths are going to be. I strongly suspect. And you know, um, you uh, you had the story as well about um, supply chains as well for them as well. That it's a completely neglected area of the health service. It's all been it's all been these are all. Um, Nearly all care homes are private enterprises. Some of them are licensed out of the county council. Some of them are licensed directly out of the, um, or contracted directly out of the NHS. So it's a huge mismatch, mishmash. Um, and uh, I think that's something that we definitely need to look at uh, in the years to come is how we are actually looking after our elderly and vulnerable. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's just an area that's been neglected even more than the and the NHS. people who look and the people who look after them as well. Yes, yeah. Well, that's the thing. We had the thing with, um, with the badge that they announced, and which cost eight ninety nine. We've got to remember that some of the people don't earn that in an hour in the care industry. Yeah. So it's more than an hour's wage for a badge, which isn't going to protect them from COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. You know, the least they, do, you know, if you're going to give them a badge, don't charge them for it. No, I would say no, because it, 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 sh- it should be issued. It should just be issued, you know, along with PPE, along with full length gowns. Because I mean, I I've been I I've been helping out in a food distribution depot this week, um, and all that we've been given is gloves and a gown, and that's just for handling food to give out to people that need it most. So if you're working in the care sector and in the NHS and you're coming into direct contact with people, potentially with COVID-19 and uh, confirmed with COVID-19, sorry, then you should be having more protection than somebody that's just handling food. Surely. I think the most, the most horrifying and sickening thing I've seen um, is the, the, the slow creep of the idea that the NHS is something that we need to raise money for. And like you know, like like a comic sort of thing. Um, there's been that tweet that, that that's gone viral. That, you know, it, it's taken a 99 year old man to drag himself across his driveway a hundred times to raise money for the NHS. And it's not a charity. Nobody should have to donate to the NHS. And it, if it needs money, the government should immediately find that money. Um, there could not be a better way to spend government money than on the NHS. But I'm worried what happens with this in the long term. You know, is that slowly going to become a thing? Is the NHS going to morph into a charity whenever we face a crisis and people chuck a tenner in like they do for when you see an appeal on the TV? That's the thing that... I, I was not expecting, and, and now we've started to see people donating. It, it, it's blown my mind a little bit. It, it's a cold, it's a cold, grey, lifeless thing, charity. It's that Clement, Clement Attlee, isn't it? Um, the, um, the, the, I mean, uh, Captain Tom, the, uh, the, the chap who's been dragging himself around, I mean, he's been splashed all over the BBC, you know, called it hero and things like that. And I mean, you can't, I can't criticize the guy because obviously he's trying to do a good thing, right? In principle, but he shouldn't be doing, he shouldn't be doing that. He shouldn't have to do that. Um, And we shouldn't be encouraging people to have to donate to the NHS because we've got fucking billionaires, right? Who can uh, whip up 20 million, which is what he raised, 20 million pounds in in moments. You've got some of these people like Richard Branson, for example, um, who are billionaires with with private islands that they've sequestered themselves on um, away from the crisis and who are demanding bailouts from the government, that they are demanding money from the government. And you've got this this old man walking around just to raise tw- uh, $20 million. It is an outrage, an absolute outrage that this is happening uh, in 21st century Britain. Um, and I, we, need, we need a response to it. We need a response to it. Um, 
we'll talk about uh, if it's okay our um, our next bit which is our our response to it um obviously uh Keir Starmer new leader of the Labour Party has made his first statements um and he's chosen to focus on the exit strategy for uh for for the government um you had some thoughts about that didn't you Bradley um yeah i i think there is a real danger on and i think some some journalists have been criticized for this in recent days focusing on the end of the lockdown and obviously we all want the lockdown to end um we're, we're all probably going a little bit cabin fever and um, being inside um, but it, if it has to stay to save lives, then it has to stay. And I think the, the danger is that if we talk, keep asking um, publicly wh- when's the lockdown ending, then the focus comes, the focus becomes the lockdown ending, um, and people perhaps begin to take it a little less seriously. Those feeling a bit frustrated with the lockdown uh, might start to bend the rules a little bit more, and that can put lives at risk. Whereas if the focus is on where's the PPE for frontline health staff. Uh, what, why is the response been so slow? You know, wh- where where are the extra ventilators? Then the focus, and the, you know, these are important questions that could save lives if, if the government is is given enough pressure to do more. Uh, then the focus becomes on actually, there's people living next door to us that aren't safe because they have to go to hospitals with people that are infected, um, and people will then hopefully keep taking the lockdown seriously. Whereas if the focus is constantly on when do we leave, when do we get out, um, then then perhaps that begins to undermine the effort itself a little bit. Uh, now, obviously, that we do need a, a coherent strategy for when the lockdown ends. Um, I don't know if at the moment that's what the opposition should be focusing on. I, I think they should be focusing on hammering home PPE rather than ventilators um, and, and, all, and all the rest of it. Yeah, I wholly uh, agree with that. Um, so, Sakia, you know, just... I, I think what's the... Um, what should be the response from activists? Because we've kind of got, a, um, obviously we want the Labour Party to do well in in the long run, but let's be honest, the next elections are next year. They may not even be held, to be fair, if this does go on for 18 months. Next general election is a long, long way away. The focus at the moment should surely not be about thinking about, you know, thinking about an exit strategy as you say the focus should be on advocating for the interests of working people which in, at the moment the, the working people most at risk of are healthcare workers surely the emphasis as you say should be um, on on PPE um, are we sort of at risk of seeing the leadership going in one direction on this and the activist base going the other way and uh, it's a depressing thought to think that that might be the case because that was basically the way things were between 2010 and 2015 when I first joined the party it seems like members were much more in tune with what was going on on the ground than what the Labour Party was talking about in in Westminster um I don't know if you uh, remember that uh, Callum uh, well, I, I wasn't a party member at the time. I certainly was sort of involved in politics, uh, certainly towards the end of, of that period you described. And I think it, it seems like that is happening at the moment. So we've got a, effectively, the, the reason why there's such a focus on the exit strategy is, is because it's about getting back to business as normal. That's why the, the, the party, I think the leadership is so obsessed with that in, in the Labour Party. But actually, we do rightly need as activists we need to be getting involved in our community checking on vulnerable neighbors getting involved in volunteering schemes and holding the government's feet to the fire i I know it's very limited when you're an activist to do that outside of the election period we need to have the leadership being our our voice on that so we need to keep pushing them on it and if, if it means that we're going in different directions so be it because we've got to be standing up for the most vulnerable We've got to be standing up for our fantastic NHS workers and care home workers and all the key workers that are risking their lives. We've got to remember they're risking their lives to do their job. And we've got to be fighting their corner because if the leadership's not going to do that, 
somebody's got to be doing it and i don't see the conservatives doing it without any pressure being put on them the reason why things like furlough was introduced and the reason why the people like um weatherspoons why they caved in and started to pay their employees a proper wage in in the light of the covid 19 crisis was because of popular pressure ordinary people coming together and saying that this is wrong and you should be doing something about this so we should be acting in the interests of the people around us and the interests of the people trying to save our lives and as i said before we've got to be going in that direction and i'm sure the leadership will eventually realize that that's the way forward instead of worrying about an exit strategy which will come you know it's 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 a while down the line yet at least three weeks so i imagine it will be longer so we let we don't need to concern ourselves with that I think there's a, a, a other another issue. We've talked a lot about you know sort of, of democracy in the country and, and the worries about authoritarianism in, in the country at large. And um, but the longer this goes on, there's also questions about democracy within the party as well. So obviously at the moment we can't have party meetings. So if activists wanted to mobilise to, to sort of force the leadership hand on an issue, and um, a good way that that would happen would be through local branch meetings. Circulate petitions and, and having conversations at, at local branch levels that would then eventually filter through to the national. But of course, we can't do that at the moment because we can't meet. Um, and even when the lockdown ends, um, we might still not be able to have party meetings then because you know if we're if we're looking at some of the projections, we could be looking at bans on on large gatherings for some time, um, or even successive waves of lockdowns. So it, it could be some time before we're really able to get back to a proper schedule of party meetings. Um, so I think actually we, we need to be thinking as activists about how we can organise within the party under the current conditions, because it, it might not just be a couple more weeks we have to, to put up with. It, it could be quite some time before we can go back to, to normal um, party democracy. Mm. The, uh, an analogy that I thought that might be uh, appropriate, um, a lot of people have talked about this particular crisis as being a bit like the Second World War. And there's an appeal to that because obviously after the Second World War, we built a sort of socialist country, or at least a social democratic one, uh, in the wake of a major crisis. Um, But actually I've been thinking a lot about um, the English Civil War, as most people know it. Um, And what's interesting about that in the context of what you just said Bradley is that for there was a period of 10 years before that happened where the king was just ruling uh, in a personal rule sort of absolute monarch style Um, and after 10 years uh, eventually he ran out of money and had to call parliament and everyone came back and minds had been changed in that time um it might be quite interesting to see if there's not, obviously it's, it's not going to take 10 years. God, you know, imagine that. But if for a period we're all away and we've gone through this crisis, do you think it's sort of going to change minds? Do you think it will affect how people behave when we do return to some semblance of normality, Bradley? I I hope so. Um, because so much worse is coming if, if we don't start changing how, how we run things and how we how we operate. And the climate crisis is going to make this look tiny in comparison if, if the projections um, bear fruit. With, you know, if we don't change track now, then the projections for what the world's going to be like towards the end of the century. Um, some of the worst predictions with four degrees of warming, society itself, as we know it, becomes pretty much unworkable. So I, I certainly hope so. Uh, but I don't think it's a certainty. I think it will require action on the ground by activists to, to make it happen. Yeah, we still need to be communicating and exchanging ideas. I mean, during that period I just mentioned, see, 400 years ago, but um, people were exchanging pamphlets and uh, expressing ideas to one another, which is obviously what we're doing um, at the moment. Um, I think we need to be prepared for big changes when when we return. Um, you know, it does. I, I mean, the um, we talked about the leaked report last week. Um, I think I don't know if you have a different perspective on it, but I think it's actually had a or going to have a, a positive um, effect 
in terms of unifying the party because we heard rumours that um, Keir Starmer was going to persuade the NEC because it's the NEC that makes the decision about these things uh, to uh, basically create a quite a right-wing bureaucracy. Bear in mind that Keir Starmer's not... I don't think he's especially right-wing himself, but he's led by that sort of faction, I think. Um, and now, and including some of the people who were named in that report as misbehaving towards party members and MPs and undermining our electoral chances as well. We now know that he will come under a lot more scrutiny, I suspect, when um, he's selecting that, that team or the NEC is going through that selection process. Um, we've all, and I wrote in my article this week, you know, we've all been hurt by the allegations in it. You know, even if you're a right winger within the party, if you genuinely believe that elections are won on the Sen's ground, for example, um, you know, you're still trying to help the Labour Party to win. You still want the party to win. Um, and uh, these people are actively acting against that. Um, so I think that we might have a much more focused um, membership when we return. Um, and there will be, having gone through this crisis, more of a readiness to accept that radical solutions are necessary. Because at the end of the day, a couple of months ago, we wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought that it would have been possible for the whole country to willingly go and stay in our homes for months on end. But now it has been revealed to be possible and that experience may radicalise people, uh, I think. And it might, and it, it's a bad thing that it's happened, but I think it might have good effects in the long run, Bradley. I, I think the, the biggest first step is changing the narrative on, on the virus. So I, I, think, I still think the dominant narrative is... Um, heroic Boris um, you know he, he's revered almost on the level of a, of a war leader like Churchill at this point um, although I, I think so I think for us we need we need to change that narrative and really so actually it, it, the government has cost lives with how poorly um, prepared they were and, and and all the bumbles along the way I, I think we are beginning to see that change a little bit actually I think that Times article um, is, is a first step there I think from a paper like the Times to have such a damning article um, is perhaps a sign that the tide is beginning to turn a little bit against the Tories. Would you agree with that, Cal? Yeah, I would, yeah. I, I think what this crisis has done is shown that when we all come together in the interest of, of society as a whole, in, whether it be in this case of saving lives or in the case, hopefully in the future, of preventing the climate crisis or um, making a society that works for everyone, we can have positive outcomes and there is a positive result. And yes, some people have ignored it, but you're going to get that with anything. You get, that's, that's democracy. That's the state of politics in, in any country is that you have people that disagree and refuse to play ball. But, but I, I really do hope that what comes out of this is, is a changed mindset, as, you, as you've both been saying is that people realise that we need to look up and we need to look after our most vulnerable people. Homelessness is defeatable. We can bring people in from the cold, give them somewhere to stay, and the state can look after them. We need to be funding our NHS much better. We might need to be re looking again at how we, how we work our schools. If they're going to get bigger, there might have to be new new ways of, of combating poverty in terms of children can't access in the in, uh, not accessing the internet. Sorry, because there's a number of children they have to either go into school to pick up work or they're given laptops by the school because they don't have have access to it at home. And again, these are policies that we've been talking about on the left, certainly in the left of the Labour Party, for for a number of years now. Ending, ending poverty in terms of making sure people have access to things like the broadband that they need at home so they can work, making sure that they have secure jobs where they're not just going to be chucked away once we hit bad times like we have now. And it, and it goes that the state does have the power to do that and the state used in the right way to make a positive difference in people's lives is possible and we should be fighting for that all the way. 
we should be making that point. We should be shouting from the rooftops if we can, because it's, it makes a bigger difference for everyone. Everyone sees a change positively in their life. And we spoke about earlier about the billionaires and millionaires. You know, if they call it, there's something like 54 billionaires in this country, if each one of them gave just one million pounds, they would have they would have got more than Captain Tom. They would have almost doubled it, if not tripled it. So we've got to consider how much money is floating around in the system and how much of that money can make a real positive change if it's pointed in the right direction and not smuggled offshore. I'd emphasize as well that it's their social obligation to hand over that money, not through charity, but through their taxation as well, uh, or primarily through their taxation, um, because it is a payment. It's a reciprocal relationship. At the end of the day, the NHS is keeping us safe, um, and we all have to contribute to that. And in exchange for that, we get free healthcare. That's the deal. Um, you know, it's not a char- it's not charity. It's something we all pay in and we all take out of. Um, during the during the course of these events, we have ended rough, rough sleeping in this country. It's something that's worth worth it. You you mentioned it. I'll emphasise it. We have ended rough sleeping in the UK for the first time in our history in response to this uh, crisis. And although that hasn't ended homelessness necessarily, um, because these people still don't have a fixed abode, but they do have a roof over their heads. And when you have a roof over your heads, that means you can start, you can be assessed for your needs. It means you can start collecting um, social security. It means that you can start going to uh, getting help to find employment or more permanent accommodation. All of these sorts of things, which are very and help with addictions as well, if it applies to many people, it does apply to. Um, it's the first step, not the last step is to have uh, towards stable and rebuilding your life, is to have a roof over your head. Um, and if anything positive comes out of this crisis, we've mentioned a lot of potential positives, um, it's that. So whatever the, I suppose, the conclusion, if you agree with this, is that you know whatever the leadership of the Labour Party and whatever political leaders in Westminster say, um, activists of the left need to keep emphasising that we've ended rough sleeping. We need a permanent pay rise for NHS staff. Um, we do need proper scrutiny of the police. Uh, we need to cancel nursing student debt. Um, we need to actually invest in our NHS so it's it's got ventilators and PPE in time for the next pandemic if there is one. And there will be one at some point because it's a natural event um, or any other crisis which involves our demands on our public services, which we all pay into and get equal benefit from. Uh, would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. So do we have any concluding remarks? Anything else we'd like to mention? Just at the focus needs to be on uh, I, I think activists now need to start thinking uh, long term if there's going to it, it looks quite likely that there's going to be long term restrictions on abilities to physically organise and, and, and meet so I think activists everywhere need to start thinking about okay so so how can we organise without having to meet people physically um, and, and what that organising needs to be aimed at is um, continuing democracy within the Labour Party um, and and pushing it towards a position of fighting harder for um, for the government to be providing PPE um, to all frontline staff, more tests, um, yeah. And and at, at, at some point, we do need to be asking those questions about a sensible um, staggered end to the lockdown. But I think really the focus needs to be on on PPE and and financial support actually, because there's still a lot of gaps there um, for for a lot of families at the moment as well in terms of. How, how much money they're receiving um, in, in welfare payments or free furlough um, or for those of you that are self-employed that aren't going to be receiving anything for a while as well. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of questions around PPE and a lot of questions around financial support that we need to be chat about louder. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you for that, Brad. Any concluding remarks, Callum? Yeah, I, I, I'd, sort of, I'd, I'd certainly echo everything that Bradley said. Um, as a party, we need to be certainly more active at the moment and beyond this crisis in our communities. I think 
this should be a hopefully it's a turning point in our in our country's history we start to realize that the policies of, of, of from socialism left-wing policies that are there to make a real difference in people's lives are realistic they do make a difference and they are completely feasible and affordable we, we've got to be making those points and you know whatever comes out of this i i, I sincerely hope it doesn't get any worse and we start to see the uh, the charts start to drop down in terms of the death rates because it's it's appalling what's going on. But once once it does subside, we don't need to be obsessing with the endpoint now. But when it does, there is questions to be asked for this government in terms of their planning, in terms of their reaction, and in terms of their ongoing um, uh, response in terms of future planning with future events and different crises that may arise. Absolutely, I agree entirely with that. Um, so, uh, with that all in mind, um, thank you very much, the two of you. Uh, it's always nice to talk with both of you. Although I do understand that, uh, obviously, uh, we do like to have a bit of variety as well. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get Karen Lee this week, but uh, we'll uh, try and shake it up a little bit. Um, so it's not just the, the three of us talk to, talking to each other, although it is, as I say, a great pleasure to do so every week. So we will be back next week, I hope, uh, all being well. Uh, stay safe. Uh, it's goodbye from me. Uh, goodbye from me. Yeah, and goodbye from me. And uh, we will see you next time.